0: Good morning. The Exodus from Egypt is the defining point in Jewish history. Uh, When God liberated, liberated his children from Egypt, he didn't pay a ransom. He conquered Egypt by displays of might and power. And with Egypt in ruins... The Israelites headed to the Promised Land, and 40 years later, only two of the original company of millions arrived. The rest died in the desert. The writer to the Hebrews performs a spiritual autopsy, and he identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed their lives. Um, Look with me at Hebrews 3, 7 through 12, as we're looking at Hebrews 2 through the middle part of chapter 4, as the writer balances sympathy and sovereignty. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. and when we look at spiritual sickness and the thing that claimed the individuals in the wilderness, what we learn is that there were heart problems. Heart problems. You have put your finger on what happened. Heart problems. But we're not talking about physical. We're talking in a spiritual way. Hardened hearts. Hardened hearts. To a Jew... The heart is not just the seat of the emotions. It's the seat of decision-making. It's why you do the things that you do. Um, And what we find in the Bible, the Bible is really clear about the role of the heart, the seat of decision-making with respect to spirituality. Um, Proverbs says, Above all, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The wellspring is that which you draw from, that innervates everything. And so it makes sense, doesn't it? That above all, if you want to guard something with respect to God, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. What's ever in your heart will make its way out in through the behaviors. So guard it. Um, Jesus indicated, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander, uh, Jews at the time were very concerned about getting things from the outside. They washed their hands very carefully so that they wouldn't um, internalize something that would create problems. And Jesus indicated, mm, that's not the way to see it. It's not what comes from outside in, it's what comes from inside out. So if you want to guard anything um, Take care of your heart, and that's what we find. Uh, The heart makes or breaks spiritual responsiveness, hard-heartedness. And we'll find this in the text. Hard-heartedness produces spiritual unresponsiveness. And we learn a couple of things about hard-heartedness. The first thing we learned from the text Is that hard-heartedness results in rebellion. It says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The word for rebellion there, it's from two words, alongside and bitterness. So we might say, don't, as, do not harden your heart as you did in the embitterment. As you did in that situation in which there were bitter thoughts and feelings that you ended up contending with and a hard heart spews bitter words towards ourselves and towards others that's one thing that we see a hard heart produces bitterness and what we find as well a hard heart triggers testing it talks about as in the time of testing in the embitterment so there was not only rebellion and bitterness there was testing Testing begins with doubts about somebody's trustworthiness. That's where testing begins. Um, say if I was to um I'm gonna pick on Brett. Brett is involved in um, managing the uh, the state of South Dakota, some of the funds that for the state. Is that correct, Brett? And so let's say that I determine that I think I'm going to ask Brett to manage some of my considerable portfolio. (laughs) Now, that's a lie. So we know that this is a a joke anyway. So that just puts it in the realm of, yeah, this is come on, Mikey. Anyway, so let's let's just say I'm going to do that. And I hear something about Brett. Somebody tells me that he's not as sharp. He's very sharp, by the way. Somebody tells me, "Mm, not really. And so I might come to him then, and if I'm in a position where I'm thinking about entrusting my portfolio to him, and if I have doubts about him, what I might want to do is... Because I have doubts, set up a test, something that he could do that would allow my doubts to recede so that I would feel free. That's testing. That's testing. So what testing is, testing is the attempt to determine the faithfulness of a partner or a colleague under suspicion. You get what it means then in the wilderness? God says, trust me. And they're saying, prove it. Prove it. We're going, to, we're going to ask God then in the wilderness to do things that would cause them to feel like they could trust Him. That's what testing is. When we test God, we ask Him to be proved, to prove that He's worthy of our trust. The problem is that when dealing with spiritual bitterness, no amount of evidence is sufficient. No amount of evidence can override the sense of doubt. You might submerge the doubt for a little while, but then it comes right back up to the surface. And as with anything that comes close to addiction, that's the problem with it. You need more evidence to produce the same degree of submerging. So maybe God only has to provide one thing, and then it goes, but then the next time he's going to have to do two things, and then three. That's the way it is. When we depend on something from the outside to submerge something on the inside. Um, It says today in the text, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. 40 years of evidence did not overcome bitter hard-heartedness. It just wasn't able to do it. The hard-heartedness and the bitterness was still there at the end of that period of time. The root of bitterness is deep, and its influence is wide. Later on in the letter of Hebrews, the writer will say, See to it that no one fails to attain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. What else do we learn about hard-heartedness? The writer... Identifies what creates heart disease. We looked at what it leads to. It leads to embitterment. It leads to testing. But what does it come from? What is the genesis of hard heartedness? I think we, yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? Because if we, if we know where it comes from, we can know how to treat it. What it says, it talks about, um, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. What is the problem with hard-heartedness? Not surprising. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. The Bible is very clear. Disbelief leads to disobedience. If you want to find the root of disobedience, you look in disbelief. Misbelieving leads to misbehaving. What is misbehaving about? It's about misbelieving. What is disobeying about? It's disbelieving. Unbelief is at the root. That's the root of hard-heartedness. So if we want to deal with hard-heartedness, we have to deal with unbelief, because that's where it comes from. That's what the text indicates. Unbelief is about not believing in God's promises. God says, I'll do this. I don't know if you will. Therefore, I'm not going to trust you with my... Because I'm not sure you're going to come through. That's uh, It talks about in Exodus 17, what this looked like in the wilderness. It's a text written in your worship folder. It says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But... There was no water for the people to drink. Just so you know, this is not just about, there's not a bubbler, you know, one of those things that water comes out of. They have used up the water resources going from point A to point B. So they're at Rephidim, and they're going to need to restock their water. They get to Rephidim, no water. This is not just inconvenient. This is life-threatening. And so what did they do? What did they do? Um... Says, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? They tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So the evidence of unbelief, hard heartedness, is grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining. Uh, And Chronic grumbling and complaining. What we see, the thing about grumbling and complaining, it can be just as fresh in the 40th year as in the first. So we saw in the first year they're complaining against Moses. And then let me read you what happens 40 years later after they've wandered around. Uh, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That sounds familiar. And that's hard-heartedness expresses itself in bitter words. And in their case against Moses and Aaron, the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? That's what we find. Uh, that's that sickness that began in the wilderness soon when they entered it, still fresh 40 years later. In fact, you know what we see? A thousand years later, we find a similar thing. Here's what Jeremiah says, and he talks about the issue that they dealt with at that time. He talks about these wicked people who, from a God perspective, who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, and go after other gods to serve and worship them. This is an interesting passage, because it talks about how hard-heartedness evolves, how it evolves. And there's three steps. It talks about these wicked people who refuse to listen to my words. That's first. Refuse to listen to my words. Secondly, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts. That's second. And third and go after other gods to serve and worship them. Let's put this in another way. Tune out, tune in, turn from. Tune out, tune in, turn from. With respect to him, tune out, turn down the volume. I'm not going to listen to what he says. I'm not going to listen to his promises. I'm going to tune him out. If I tune him out... Then that leads to tuning in. I'm going to tune myself in. What do I want? What do I see? What do I think? And then tune out, tune in, and that leads to turn from. It doesn't just go, I'm going to go in this direction from God. It's not that fast. There's a process, though. Tuning out. Tuning in. Turning from. That's what Jeremiah says. Dealing with hard-heartedness is tricky. Because the root cause gets buried. The root cause gets buried. People quarreled with Moses, give us water to drink. But it really wasn't about Moses. Again, what they were doing, the cloud was moving them through the wilderness. I mean, when the cloud departed, they departed. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. Why did they stop in him? Because the cloud stopped. Was Moses directing the cloud? It wasn't like a balloon. You know, it wasn't like a big balloon that Moses had. You know, he has this balloon and he's walking along and he, I think we'll stop here. It was a big cloud and no strings attached. God was the one that was directing the cloud. So who was their issue with? God. But who'd they blame? Moses. That's what's happening with hard-heartedness. The thing that's tricky is we tend to Misdirect are real issues. They had issues with God, but they felt it's safer to download those issues on somebody a little bit safer. And so they downloaded them onto Moses. God was the one that was leading them. Again, the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. They assumed that it was safer to blame Moses than to blame God. And they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? You know what God wants from us? To speak freely with him. He wants us to treat him as if he exists. We, if we fall into trouble, we don't want to be honest with God. We think he likes it better when we, God, thank you for the food. Thank you for the, it's a wonderful life. Fresm, frism, rism, frism, 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 and then we'll blow somebody else out who lives next to us. Frism, rism, frism, rism, frism, frism, And, oh, God, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking to you. Frism, rism, frism, rism, rism. Not you. (laughs) But God took that personally. Because he was the one that was leading them. And what he wanted, take me seriously. Take me seriously. I said I'd be with you in the wilderness, so if you're going to talk to somebody, talk to me. Am I I among you or not? I think that's one of the things. He wanted openness. It says what we'll find in the text when we get to Hebrews 4. It says, approach the throne of grace with confidence. That word of confidence is a word we talk about, parousia. It's speaking freely. Approach the throne of grace speaking freely. God already knows what you think. We tend to think that if we say nice things to God, he goes, oh, that makes me feel good. What makes good feel good is honesty. He already sees it. Don't pretend with him. Um, Another thing um, we find... uh, God took it personally. He wanted him to treat him as an active part of what's going on, not passive. When they ran into life threatening problems, they assumed that God could not be the one leading them. Moses must be. They assumed. If they are in a difficult place, Rephidim, no water, it couldn't have been Moses. It, I mean, it couldn't have been God. I mean, God would never lead anybody to a waterless place, would He? I mean, God would never lead anybody to a place where they had needs, hunger, thirst. He he wouldn't do that, would he? Has he ever done that to you? Well no, it wasn't God's fault, it was mine. I made a bad, hm, That's hmm? so what it says in Deuteronomy 8, and it's in your worship folder, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days, in the, these 40 years, excuse me, in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing to know You to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and led you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your feet did not swell these 40 years, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God caused them to hunger. He caused them to hunger. It's not just allow. Caused. How do you cause somebody to hunger? You don't provide them what they need. They deal with lack, so they experienced hunger. That's something you can't just ignore. He caused them to hunger. And then he fed them in unexpected ways with manna, which they had never heard about. Why he caused them to hunger and fed them in unexpected ways is to teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone, but everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's what he wanted them to understand. See, what comes from the mouth of the Lord was physical bread. What comes from the mouth of the Lord as well was promises, And when there's no bread there, what we have to cling to is the promise. And if we have plenty of bread, we don't really have to cling to the promise. You are in a place where you have needs. You imagine you've done something wrong. Might it be that God is treating you as a child and he disrupts. the things which we rely on to provide us what we need. Why does he do that? Because when you don't see provision, you really have to tune him in. You have to tune God in. What do you God, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> Remember the three points? We tune out, tune in, turn from. And when we turn from and we run out of water, one of the things we do if we're wise is we start to turn to, tune in, and talk to him. We start to treat him as if he's real, because he is. Because he is. He's directing our lives. Um, In the wilderness God called hunger, uh, the wilderness is the place where God teaches us to depend on what he says rather than just on what we see. Faith, Paul talks about we live by faith, not by sight. If you have everything lined up, if you have plenty of provisions, you really don't need to live by faith. We live by faith, not by sight. So what ends up happening, we're put in places where we don't have everything that we need. And that puts us in a place that we need to think about, what did you promise to me? And can I trust you? Um, Hardheartedness, we talked about it comes from unbelief. It leads to grumbling. It leads to testing. That it's a long-term thing that doesn't dissipate quickly and is not easily treated. Here's the question. What is the antidote for hardheartedness? That's an important question because hard heartedness creates spiritual non-responsiveness. That's what it does. So if we want to deal with the problem, we deal with hard heartedness. How do we deal with hard heartedness? Um, He talks about it in a text that we will look to it. And we'll come back to this. Look at what it says in Hebrews four, six through 11. Since therefore, It remains for some to enter it, and it's talking about God's rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. That word disobedience there, it says they didn't enter God's rest because of disobedience. Let me tell you what that disobedience is like. It's a very particular word. It's disobedience based on disbelief. Do the Brett thing. So Brett says, okay, Mike, give me the money and I'll invest it for you. I don't trust him. I don't give him the money. Why am I not giving him the money? Because I'm bad? Because no, because I don't trust him. That's this word. That's this word. It's disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. I don't believe I can trust him. Therefore, I'm not going to do what he says. That's what this text is indicating. Um, they didn't enter because of disbelief-based disobedience. Do you get that? Very important. Very important. Because you get into to the heart of the issue. It's not just what you do, but it's why you do what you do. The fact is, disobedience comes from disbelief. Misbehaving comes from misbelieving. So we have to deal with the belief issue. That's critical to hard-heartedness. We deal with the belief issue. Um, He goes on, again he points a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see, this isn't just about the wilderness, this is about now. And it's not about to the land of Canaan. It's about there is a place of rest that we can enter into now. There remains a rest for the people of God. God extends it. How do we enter it? it says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by following the same sort of disobedience. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let me tell you, step one. Hear his voice. That's step one. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. What is he saying? What is God saying? You know what he's saying? Enter my rest. 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 That's what he's saying in the context. That's what he wanted for them. Enter my rest. Um, Okay, seems simple enough. And to rest, I got my folks an anniversary card, not my finest moment. Had two really fat orangutans on the cover. (laughs) And then it said, it's not that we're getting old and fat. You open up, it said, we've developed powerful muscles that enable us to sit for long periods of time without tiring. Happy anniversary. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Not my finest moment. Um, we learn something important about entering God's rest. And we'll say this a couple times. This is really important. We enter God's rest. He does not enter our restlessness. We enter God's rest. He doesn't enter our restlessness. And we enter his rest as we are. With all our issues, we enter his rest with our doubts. We enter his rest with our concerns because it's in his rest that hard-heartedness is dealt with. It's in His rest that belief gets fixed, that believing gets fixed, that our heart softens. If you try to soften your heart, you will not do it. You can't. Forty years into the wilderness, miracles, all kinds of things, their heart was just as hard. What do we do to deal with a hardened heart? We enter God's rest. That's what we do. And we're going to talk about that. What does that mean? How do we do that? That's what we've got to understand. Um, We enter God's rest. He doesn't enter our restlessness. Rest is what God has experienced since the seventh day of creation. It says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Rest is where God lives. Rest is what God experiences and has been experiencing. Rest is the realm of finished work. Rest is where God lives. It's not what God gives. You know what God is asking you to do? He's not asking you to make rest happen. He's asking you to enter His rest. Because the fact is, and this is tricky, but I think it's true. What do you imagine God's doing right now? I mean, we all know that Sunday is a really tough day for God. We knew, we heard it growing up. God hates it when you run in church. And you know, gee, I mean, Sunday must be the worst day possible because God hates it when kids run around in church. I'm just kidding. He really doesn't. But, but that's what we might have heard. God hates it when you run in church. And so, I mean, God really just must be beside himself. You know, there's kids running all over the place and we laugh. We laugh. But certainly God is beside himself because of the state of the world. Certainly God is fretting and fuming, right? He couldn't be at rest, could he? He's not that sovereign, is he? He certainly must be going crazy because of the conservative agenda or the liberal agenda. Is it possible that God is resting and has been resting for a long time? You know what rest is? The prerogative of being divine. Rest is the prerogative of divinity. God is powerful enough. Guess what? He is resting. He's not really concerned. He's not sweating. He's not wringing His hands. And you know what He wants you to do? He wants you to enter that. And sit with him. David told me a story once. I forget. I think it was a nephew. I really like this story. Was it a nephew, Dave? There was, there was a nephew. He got his head caught in the slats of a bed. And, and Dave, he was trying to help him so that he would know. He said, turn your head. But he, he just, and it was really hard because he was really afraid. And I like, so what he did, David went underneath the bed. And he put his head up through the slat. And he looked at him eyeball to eyeball. And he said, okay, now, I want you to look at me. Let's do this together. You ready? Let's go like this. And he managed his head out of the slat. You know what he asked him to do? Do you know what David did? You're stuck and you can't get out. You enter my rest because I'm... And there was. he told me again, another story similar. He's a scuba diver. And... When you're trying to supply oxygen to a diver whose oxygen supply has been compromised, what you do and say so you might be down very deep. What he told me is that you do is you get in front of the diver and then you're gonna shear the oxygen, but then what he does is look at me. Look at me, okay? And so when the diver who is panicked looks at him, he starts to attune himself to his breathing. (laughs) That's why God wants you to enter his rest. God's going... Look at me look at me I'm not concerned my work's been done I know what's going to happen in the end I am not beside myself you enter my rest are you as glad as I am that he doesn't enter my restlessness thank God that I don't need to try to clean up my restlessness in order to provide a nice, clean place, clean place for God to come. No, don't. I would much rather enter his rest, the place of finished work, and we learn, we learn. Um, entering God's rest is the antidote for spiritual sickness. Entering God's rest is the antidote for hard-heartedness. The only one. Enter the rest and learn to think about God and how in control he is and how sympathetic he is. And attune yourself to his breathing. Entering God's rest, it says, let us therefore... Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by following the same sort of, you know what this really literally means? The word make haste, let us, it's spudo men. It's the word from which we get speed. You know what it's saying? Really, it's really funny. Rest and be quick about it. Hurry up and rest. Hurry up. That's what it's saying. If you want to focus on something, you want to do something, we have a tendency to try to react and rush and do things. You want to rush at something? Rush to learn how to rest. That's what it's saying. Um, entering God's rest is the antidote for hard-heartedness. I'm going, to, I'm going to put this in a little edgy, but I think that's what it indicates. Learn to rest. Or else. Or else what? Or else what? Or else what? Hard-heartedness. Listen to me. Resting is not nice. It's necessary. This isn't nice. It's necessary. Everything hangs on this. Enter his rest. This is an extremely difficult lesson to learn. It's hard to apply because where God would have us apply it is in the wilderness. Everything's falling apart. Look at your checkbook, but then look in his eyes. Enter his rest. It's hard to enter his rest. When everything is falling apart around us. Would you agree? That's where he teaches us to enter his rest. Some of you are wondering why life is so difficult. You know what God is doing? Come here. I want to teach you to come to me. I want to teach you to enter my rest. And I know that you're really not going to tune me in until you have to. That's what He wants from you. And that's why things are falling apart. It's not that He's abandoned you. He's calling you. That's why things have been difficult. He's summoning you. (coughs) Enter my rest. That's what He's saying. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. It's hard to apply in our day because 99% of Christian messages I hear indicate that God is displeased and you have to do something so he will be not displeased. Is that, Am I right in that? Most messages I hear would lead me to believe that God is upset, frustrated, concerned, and I need to do something in order to allow God to have a good day. You know what the fact is? If you obey or not, God's going to have a fine day. So don't obey Him because you're going to make God's day. You can't break God's day and you can't make God's day because He's at rest. Why should I do what He says? Because that's the way to be spiritually healthy. Um. We're so used to hearing the voice of God that we can't hear the voice of God. We're so used to hearing the voice of God. You know what the voice of God? God is a cattle prod. God says this: Don't just sit there, do something. Don't just sit there. Don't just sit there. Do. Don't just sit. Don't just sit there. there, Do something. That's the voice of God. You know what the voice of God says? Don't just do something. Sit there. Don't just do something. Sit there. In fact, sit where? Sit with me. Sit with me. I was so used to hearing the voice of God and thinking it's the voice of God, but it isn't. God doesn't prod you. He doesn't goad you. I'm not sanctioning laziness. There's things to do. We don't have the ability To just coast, there's all kinds of stuff to do. But do this, though. If you're going to ask somebody to do something, say, you know what, here's what I need you to do. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't say, don't wrap your desire in God's clothes. God needs you to do this. Don't do that. Because God does not need for them to do that. Don't do that. Again, if you have, okay, enter God's rest. If you have done that, be careful. Be careful. Sometimes we wrap our desires in God talk because it gives it more weight. Don't do that. Don't do that because you're creating an impression that is not true. you get that? So we have to be active, but don't force people to be active and save God's reputation. Um, Sin, yeah, there's a lot of things. Influence, but don't fuse your desire with God's desire. I got a question. Does your sin disturb God's rest? Ooh. Ooh. Does your sin disturb God's rest? I see your head going this way. Does your sin disturb God's rest? I see some head going like that. Good for you. Does your sin disturb God's rest? It does not. How do you know? This is what the New Covenant says. I will put my law in your mind and write it on your heart. God claims responsibility. He says, that's my job. You enter my rest. I'll take care of putting my law in your heart. It says, no longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. God says, by the way, evangelism is your opportunity, but not your responsibility. I will cause them to know me. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, say, "Know the Lord," because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And you know it's interesting when you stop feeling evangelism is your responsibility. When you tell somebody about God, there's good news. <laughs> Get that? If you have good news, that's something you want to tell somebody. If you're obligated, you understand. And God says, I will forgive their wickedness. I will be helios to their unrighteousness. Says, You know what helios means? Gracious, favorable, benevolent, cheerful. Your sin does not impact God's day. And you know what would happen if we believed that? We would start to rest. And you know what would happen if we started to rest? Our heart would soften. You know what would happen? We might find ourselves... Being responsive to him that 's what this table is about there's a table here and here. This is a feast that helps us think about the new covenant and here's what the new covenant says and by the way, when you go up and take the juice and the bread, would you do me a favor? Would you bring all your issues with you? Bring all your stuff. Bring all your fears. Bring all the questions that you have. Don't leave them underneath your seat. Because he wants you to enter his rest, not a reasonable facsimile of you. You enter his rest, and you have questions, and you have doubts, and you have restlessnesses. Thank God that he doesn't say he'll enter your rest. You enter his rest. Bring all your stuff with you. All of it. And sit with him. And you know what you'll find? Believing leads to behaving slowly, eventually. Uh, We're going to have some songs again. Grab the bread and grab the juice. And I want you to think about God's rest. And I would, where are you? Say, God, would you help me to learn how to enter your rest? Go ahead and grab those. And I won't tell you when to take the bread and the juice, but sometime then we'll have a, a song. Pray for us. Father, you tell us today if we hear your voice, and that's where everything starts, we gotta hear what you're saying, and then we can respond. We gotta hear what you want us to believe, and then we can believe it. You would have us believe you're at rest, and you would tell us to enter it today. We'll talk about that. We enter your rest not for tomorrow, but for today, day at a time. That's hard. Would you teach us this, in order that we might become spiritually more healthy as we spend time in your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.